0: Will you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you this morning and we're grateful for your presence among us. We pray that now you speak to us through your holy word that's been passed down to us and and cherished throughout time, that these words become your living word, that, that break through the barriers of our own hard hearts and our hard heads, that the words that we read now are your words that You speak to us in this place, regardless of where we've come from, or what we're going through, or what we return to after worship this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked... A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said back to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now growing up, many of you know this, I enjoy being outside. I enjoy uh, the ocean. I enjoy the woods. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm constantly getting sunburned or uh, some other ailments when I'm outside. But as a kid, I was always growing up exploring the woods I was playing football at this field that was surrounded by what seemed like a forest when I was three feet tall, but really it was just a couple of trees. But what happened was there were lots and lots and lots of mosquitoes by that field. I'm telling you, we played football six, seven days a week, which means I got eaten alive by mosquitoes like six or seven days a week. So the majority of my childhood was spent with mosquito bites all over me. My mom said it's because I had sweeter blood than all the other kids, And I think that's probably right. So, um, unfortunately, when I was a kid, a a book series got turned into a movie series, and it was very popular, called Harry Potter. And there was a character in Harry Potter, it was a rat, and it was named Scabbers. And because kids are not always the nicest, my nickname for a long time was Scabbers. This is where you all can feel sorry for me. This is why I get a little snarky, and it's because I was always on the defense growing up. But, you know, no one wants to really be called scabbers, let alone when you know it's after a rat. But that's the nickname I got. When I was a little older, I was in college, and I was able to go uh, to Ireland for for two summers for an internship. And at that point, I did not drink very much coffee. So one day after a couple weeks, uh, all the leaders wanted to go get coffee at McDonald's. And we all went, and five people ordered coffee in front of me. They're like, Mike, we'll cover it. And I got up to the counter and I said, I'd like a mango smoothie, please. And they went, are you serious? You got a mango smoothie? And from that day forward, I was Mango Mike. (laughs) And to this day, the kids I met in Ireland will email me or Facebook me and say, mango. It's a nickname that has stuck, but it's kind of endearing, even though I'm named after a fruit now. And so I say all that to say, sometimes you get nicknames you want and that are endearing. And sometimes you get nicknames you never asked for. You know, if I got to choose my own nickname, it'd probably be much cooler than that. But usually people don't play those games with you and let you choose. But I say all that to say naming is a really important part of scripture. Uh, it, there's a funny thing I was reading online the other day about one of the funniest things Jesus did was rename people with no context. And it's like, hi, my name's Simon. Like, I'm going to call you Peter. And it's like, oh, okay. Like Jesus is just renamed people. But it's something that happened throughout the Old Testament too, Uh, Most notably, we know the story of Jacob, and Jacob and his brother Esau, and Jacob's name meant he who grasps the heel, because Jacob was defined by these stories where he's always like striving to get something, and he wrestles with God all night trying to get something, and eventually God succumbs in some way, or he says, all right, you you lasted longer than I thought you would. I'm going to rename you Israel, and it became this characterizing name for his entire people, in fact, we call them the people of Israel. So sometimes when you're reading that part of Genesis, you're like, we're talking about a person or the people. But naming has become a very important part of the story of Scripture. And Jesus is very interested in the names that we give one another. Unfortunately, we are not so good, like the kids that called me scappers, we're not so good at naming people necessarily. When we read the Bible, actually, we name people unknowingly Sometimes with good intentions, but often with bad results. We have all kinds of names for characters that don't appear in the Bible. We call people things like the woman caught in adultery. She had a name. We call people like that blind man, that beggar, that person with leprosy, the, the woman with that blood disease, the Syrophoenician woman. We name people by their ailments or the sins they were caught in or Or their ethnicities, rather than acknowledging that they are people made in the image of God. And it reveals something about us. One is that it's convenient to tell a story of the Bible and say, oh yeah, that's the one where the person touched Jesus' robe. But it reveals that our society defines one another by the things that we see most. And that makes sense, and yet it, it is counterintuitive to the truth of Scripture that we are all made in the image of God. What God is doing in our lives is bigger than what we see one another doing. What, what Jesus sees in some of these people is not just their ethnicity, but rather that their faith has made them whole. He says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Jesus meets each of these people that are outcast by society, that are named by society, and says that they're beloved, I wonder what kind of names and nicknames and identities that the people in this room or that are worshiping online have taken on because the people around you in your lives have called you it for so long you started to believe it's true. I wonder what sins you've allowed to define you throughout your life because you've wrestled with them for so long or or what struggles you have allowed to become part of your identity. Maybe it's time to let some of those things go and remember that God has called you beloved. Today's scripture is one of my favorite passages of scripture, and it's about someone that has gotten a bad rap in the 2,000 plus years since it happened. It's the story of Thomas, but you probably know him better as Doubting Thomas. I think this has to be the most unfair nickname we've ever given someone in scripture. Thomas, to put this in perspective, I don't even know how many other Thomases there are in the Bible. It's not like we need to differentiate between multiple Thomases. We can just call him Thomas. But Thomas followed Jesus for three years. He's watching miracles happen. He's sleeping outside on the dirt, and he's following his Lord, and then he watched him die. He didn't pass out on the road. Jesus was murdered on a cross and for three days, Thomas had to grieve the death of his dearest friend, his Lord and his Savior. And then one day, all of his friends said, Hey, Jesus is back. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it myself. And then we all went, Oh, doubting Thomas. That's not what the story says. The story says that Jesus shows up to the 11 other disciples, shows them his hands and his side, and then they believed. And then we treat Thomas like this weird outcast because later he asks for the very same proof. We know what it's like to see hopes and dreams die in the world. You don't have to look too far. People debate about what injustice means or or what the reason for poverty is or when did racism begin or when did it end. There are all kinds of evils in the world. And there's so much chatter and spin about why they exist or how it's there. But they're there. Something we should be able to agree on is when another shooting happens in a school or at a parade. That we are seeing with our own eyes evil in the world around us. Darkness in the world around us. There's suffering in this world that causes logical people every day. People of faith every day to go how can I believe in a good God when all of this keeps happening? We may forget sometimes if the news doesn't put it in your face, but there's a war going on across the world right now. We were fortunate enough this last week to have a student from the Czech Republic stay with us, and we were blessed to hear her sing last week. But I was struck by how much Hannah, our guest, was sharing about how the church in the Czech Republic and the people, not only in their churches, but their schools, are so driven by this war across the world to make a difference, to make a stand. And of course, geographically, they're closer, but their faith has been connected to the hurts of others. Their faith in Jesus could not let them look the other way from the suffering in the world. But just like Thomas, we see the suffering, and it's real. Thomas experienced the loss of his dearest friend and his Savior, and then was expected to just pretend like it was all okay again. But we know that sometimes when you suffer in this life, it hurts to hope again. Because when you hope again, you have the opportunity to get hurt again. But the story of Scripture goes further than that. Thomas is met with Jesus, and he's not condemned. The same way when the woman caught in adultery... Jesus' response to her is, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Thomas and Jesus start talking. Jesus says, Thomas, put your hand in mine. Feel the nail marks. Feel my side. And Thomas' response is, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, what were you doing? Why did you doubt? He doesn't shame him. He knows why he doubted. That's why he showed up. I think we we treat this as this indictment of Thomas but read, read hear these last two lines again from Jesus. Thomas says my lord and my god and Jesus said to him have you believed because you've seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I don't believe this is an attack on Thomas from Jesus he's it's a statement of what this journey of faith is it's a faith that's passed down from generation to generation. I'm assuming no one in this room has seen Jesus recently walking through town or drinking a latte. This is a faith where we are described as the people that believe without seeing. But Thomas, just like the 11 other disciples, had to see Jesus. We don't call them Doubting Matthew. No, just Thomas. I think a more fitting name would maybe be Human Thomas or Hurting Thomas. The reality of a person that has tried for so long to believe but has been weighed down by the hurts of the world. But Jesus doesn't condemn him. He says, No, put your hand in mine and believe. Sometimes we treat doubt as if it is this antithesis to faith. And years ago, we had a stoner speaker here, Dr. Jonathan Walton, and he said, No, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. Because just like you cannot be courageous without first having fear, you can't have faith without first having doubt. The doubt that we see in Scripture is a response to a hurting world. The doubt that we see in our own lives is a response to things that just don't make sense. But faith is our response to that doubt. It's an action that we take. This this faith that we carry on is one that's full of hope. But it's not always as strong as the days that feel great. Some days are harder than others. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh, and He came down and He took on the suffering of the world on our behalf. And because of that, Thomas struggled to believe He could do it again, to believe in this resurrection that nobody saw coming, and yet we treat Him like He's this crazy character in the scriptures we all struggle with doubt all the time. Now, Thomas was fortunate enough to see Jesus in the flesh, but we have not. We are aware of the evils in this world. We are aware of people that claim Christ's name and do horrible things. Further, we know that there are people that don't claim Christ's name and do horrible things. We've been on the receiving end of all those things. Sometimes we, we are grieving the loss of the people closest to us, grieving the dreams that have died in our own lives. There is struggle and suffering in the world that causes us to waver in our faith. But the faith of Scripture, the tradition of this faith, is not to pretend like darkness doesn't exist. It's not to pretend like these things don't hurt and that they shouldn't be grieved and that we shouldn't take them seriously. And Jesus himself The night on which he was betrayed, before he was killed, he's praying to God with tears of blood, please let this pass from me. This life involves suffering, but the faith that we have is that suffering and death don't have the final say. That death itself cannot have the final say. We believe in a risen Lord, that everything in this world points to something about resurrection that the things that die away give life to something new and that's where our hope lies now many of you know me by now and i'm sure on many of your bingo cards for this morning you were waiting for a c.s. lewis tie-in to this story if you were here for the lenten soup suppers we talked about narnia for quite a bit there's this story called the chronicles of narnia and the silver chair where there's a Uh, an evil witch that has enchanted all of Narnia and she's moved everyone underground, meters and hundreds of meters underground where they can't see the world above anymore. She's tricked them into believing there was never an Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion. There was never any trees or grass or water or a sun or a sky. It was all in your imagination She convinces these characters with her spell that that everything you had hope in, how could you believe in it? It was all fake. Look around you. Everything's dark and damp and depressing and despairing. And the characters are right on the edge of giving up. And it's then that the strangest character, but perhaps my favorite in all of Narnia, Puddleglum the Marshwiggle, everyone knows what a Marshwiggle is, Puddleglum says, okay, hold on. I hear what you're saying, and and you might be right, but you've left out one thing. Suppose everything you've said is true. Suppose everything I ever thought was real about Aslan and the sun and Narnia. Suppose it's all fake. Then my fake world sounds far better and more beautiful and more powerful than this dark, hollow world you're describing. He says... I'm going to be on Aslan's side even if there is no Aslan. I'm going to live like a Narnian even if there's no Narnia. And this, this moment of courage from Puddleglum, this moment of faith in response to the darkness and the doubt and the despair is the very thing that breaks the enchantment over all of the other characters. Now, I don't say this as a cheap bargaining you know, advertisement to say, just keep pressing on when things get hard, but the, the story that Lewis is trying to convey with this character, Puddleglum, is our story, too, that we look out into the world around us. We look out like a Thomas, and we see that there are all kinds of things weighing down. Time and time again, there's news story after news story of something else we should be lamenting and grieving as people of God. But part of that grief comes from an internal knowing. That this is not how things were meant to be. This is not the world God intended it to be. That he's called us out into the world to be lights in that darkness. But there are days when we struggle to, to succumb to that own light. There are days when we struggle to believe the things we once believed. There are days when having hope feels harder than anything else because you've been hurt so many times. That's the story of Thomas. It's a human story. It's the story of Jesus, too. But the good news of the gospel is that at every turn, Jesus is opening his hand saying, put your hands in mine and feel that I have suffered too. We see all throughout scripture that Jesus actually suffers along with the people. He sees his friend Lazarus die and he weeps for his death. Jesus weeps with us and weeps with the suffering. In fact, he spent all of his time with the lowest among us, the outcasts in society, the people that have been nicknamed something for their suffering and their ailment. And Jesus spends time with those people to say, I am here with you. But this is not the end of the story. This does not get the final word. Life, resurrection, thriving, that is what the intention of creation has always been. And we as the people of God are called to step into that place Sometimes the most honest thing you can do is tell God how much you struggle to believe. There's an episode in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is talking to a man whose whose child has been suffering for years. And Jesus says, all things are possible with God. Believe it. And the man's response is, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the most honest prayer we can bring ourselves to pray sometimes. But it's what God's asking for God's asking for a Thomas to admit out loud that you want to see Jesus too. That you've seen this darkness for so long that you want to believe. You want to see the light. That's why we come together in worship. That's why we have pre-written prayers in these services because sometimes we feel things we don't know how to put into words. That's why we recite creeds together as believers because some days it's so hard to say out loud that we believe in all of the goodness of God when we see the world around us. That's why we worship in a community and not in isolation because there are days when you alone can't do it and your brothers and sisters in Christ are called to lift you up, to encourage you, to support you, to pray for you. May we be people that do that for others. And may we have enough trust in one another and in God to trust each other, to do that for us as well. Thomas should not be named Doubting Thomas. Imagine being named after your lowest moment, your most despairing moment. Imagine that one snapshot being the thing that defines you for the rest of your life. Brian Stevenson, who works with the Innocence Project, he, he says that every human is better than their worst day. Let your faith carry you into the identity that Jesus created you for. You're an image bearer of God. You are called beloved and you've been called to be a light in the world around you. And when you despair, when you struggle with your doubts, know that Jesus is not turning his back on you. His hands are open and saying, come to me and believe. Sometimes belief is just the act of telling God about your struggle to believe. But in doing so, we proclaim our faith and our hope in a God that is good and that does not let death have the final word. So may we be people that follow in those footsteps. Amen.